the Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. So I made a one-day appearance to the Neurocritical Care Society annual meeting, and there was a plethora of pharmacist-featured research. So I'm so excited to be able to highlight the amazing work of our pharmacist peers and colleagues from the 2023 NCS annual meeting. So nine pharmacists joined me to discuss everything from pharmacotherapy with neuro neuroendovascular stents to augmented renal clearance to validating a VPA derivation equation, neurostimulant prescriptions in neurologically injured patients, melatonin use, and pharmacist participation in various scenarios. Now, a quick reminder of the format for pharmacist featured research review episodes. So I'll introduce each guest. They'll give an overview of their research and then I'll join them for a quick Q&A. Um, the link in the episode description, it's going to take you to a post that will have all the research posters, right? So you can view them and then visualize what the guests are referencing. And maybe even more importantly, you all get to enjoy this research and you didn't have to go to Phoenix in August. So I think that makes you all the real winners. What an awesome episode. So let's get going. And uh, thankful to be joined by recurring guest, Casey May. Uh, and if you haven't yet uh, listened to the aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage part two uh, episode, Casey's an awesome guest host. And then reminder, uh, Casey's a clinical associate professor at uh, the Ohio State University College of Pharmacy and a neurocritical care pharmacy specialist at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. And not only was this uh, research presentation highlighted in the late breaking science session at the NCS annual meeting. That's correct. Casey was on the big screen in front of the, in the big auditorium, but it's also been published ahead of print in neurocritical care. Now, Casey May is the first author of this uh, really like neurocritical care pharmacist collaboration, including a uh, collaboration with the neurocritical care society pharmacy study group. I mean, this study is entitled the multi-center comparison of the safety and efficacy of clopidogrel versus ticagrelor for neuroendovascular stents. So Casey, I think I, I, I think I, spent long enough in the intro. Why don't you come in and let the, uh, the listeners know uh, what this study was and what you ultimately found? Yeah, great. Thanks for uh, highlighting the study. It's been a labor of love for me, so I'm excited to talk about it. Um, so this study, we really set out to evaluate stent thrombosis at three to six months um, when comparing patients who 
are on aspirin and clopidogrel or aspirin and ticagrelor for their neuroendovascular stents. And just for those of you who are not super aware, there's not a lot of data when it comes to evaluating, comparing these two groups. Um, also in just ticagrelor alone in neuroendovascular stenting. So we really set out to see if there was um, a difference that we could see in the long-term outcomes of stent thrombosis of these patients. So as you mentioned, this was a collaboration of the Neurocritical Care Pharmacy Study Group. So this is a multi-center. We include 12 different sites, um, retrospective study um, that was completed um, between the dates of July 2017 and October of 2020. Um, we included patients in a reverse chronological order. So we went from the most recent into um, the oldest so that we can make sure we eliminated, eliminated as much um, practice variation with respect to time as we as we possibly could. So ultimately, patients were um, divided between the two groups, um, between aspirin and clopidogrel and aspirin and ticagrelor based on their discharge regimen. So that's how we divided the two groups. When looking at our results, we actually screened over 570 patients between the 12 centers, and we included um, 360 patients in the clopidogrel group and 126 patients in the ticagrelor group. Um, there were really not a lot of differences between the two groups when we started looking at baseline characteristics. The only thing that really was different between the two was that the clopidogrel group was actually uh, more commonly having a planned procedure. Um, and we can talk about that a little bit um, when we discuss kind of what we found. It was a wide variety of um, locations of where the stent was placed, as well as the type of stent or the type of procedure that was done. But ultimately, we found that there was no difference in stent thrombosis. And stent thrombosis was really a composite of the patient presented with new clinical symptoms of a stroke or and or they had a, um, a, a, a stroke on imaging. So that stent was thrombosed and they could see that on imaging. So it could be one of the two or both. Um, ultimately, I found no difference between the two. Both had a stent thrombosis rate of about 8%. Um, and so no difference there. Um, obviously, we're going to be concerned, too, with secondary outcomes of bleeding is mostly what we looked at and mortality. And we saw no difference between any major bleeding, minor bleeding, or death between the two groups. Um, those were our, probably our biggest findings for, like, the primary and, and secondary outcomes. So, I mean, labor of love is uh, probably putting it kindly. What a what an endeavor, right? One of the, I think, the biggest study to date looking at this. So uh, kudos to all of you. Now, educate me because I feel like I'm, I'm a little ignorant to this question, but what are like special considerations with like neuroendovascular stents compared to like dual antiplatelet therapy with like the classic like coronary artery stents? Yeah, so, you know, there are obviously different types of coronary artery stents, too. And the most common you think about would be, um, is it drug-eluting, is it not? But generally speaking, coronary stents are straight. Um, and so when it comes to cerebral or neuroendovascular stents, um, they come in many shapes, sizes, um, and types. The biggest thing that we like to think about um, is you know, comparing those patients that may have an ICA stent, which we um, know has a pretty low thrombotic risk, so just right there in the ICA, versus like slow diverting stents or other types of stents that would be more um, in the true like uh, 
vasculature of the brain. Um, and these patients, these, excuse me, stents are very thrombogenic because if you think about the, the, the nature of the vessels in the brain, it can be very torturous. And so these stents turn a lot um, and are generally much more thrombotic than we would even think of like a coronary stent. So when we put patients on stent, we're very um, cautious and uh, cognizant of what their dual antiplatelet therapy looks like and ensuring that it is um, what we would call therapeutic, which is something that we don't focus on as much in the coronary artery sense. So it feels to me less like that's less like apples and oranges and maybe it's not like apples and spaghetti, but maybe it's like apples and avocado because that's definitely very different, right? Very different um, considerations and just kind of mechanisms in general. Now you mentioned monitoring. That was one of my big questions was, um, you know, if you are a center that routinely doesn't use platelet monitoring tests when patients are started on dual antiplatelet therapy, is there, is there a signal from this that maybe we should consider using one over the other as a first-line agent? Because it, you know, I noticed it was a pretty high rate of platelet monitoring that happened in these groups in this multi-center trial. Yeah, so, you know, obviously these are these patients come from, you know, large centers who do this pretty frequently. And so most likely this is representative of the actual patient population that we are seeing these neurodivascular stenting procedures in. And as you mentioned, like we aren't necessarily monitoring in coronary stents because there has been literature to prove that there's no difference. Um, however, we do have some significant literature in the neurodivascular space that if patients are not appropriately um antiplateleted, for lack of better words, um, on their <laughs> dual antiplatelet therapy that they, it can lead to stent thrombosis. And so um, we do have um, literature supporting that monitoring is important in these patients. And so, yes, you are correct. We had um, nearly 80% of our patients um, in, in both arms had platelet monitoring. Um, you know, why, why is this important? And I think uh, when it comes to, when you look at the primary outcome of no difference between stent thrombosis, I think you have to kind of put the pin in that caveat that, yes, we saw no difference, but we had a very, very high rate of monitoring um, in both groups. But most commonly, this is targeting that clopidogrel, right? So we know that clopidogrel is a prodrug that needs to be converted into the active form. There's a lot of genetic mutations that can affect how that metabolism happens. It can happen that the patient has um, significantly more drug converted or significantly less drug converted. And so here you can actually see bleeding or thrombosis complications in patients with clopidogrel, which has been reported in the neurodivascular literature. So yes, I think that um, if, if you are a site that is, is not um, monitoring, you know, perhaps the first step isn't monitoring, but it's actually looking and seeing if you're having any problems with stent thrombosis. Um, and, you know, maybe that is, is the first step um, or just having a conversation with your providers of their comfort level um, with monitoring and, you know, potential dose augmentation or switching to Tecagrelor if a patient um, happens uh, to be a non-responder to clopidogrel. That's really great advice in a way to take this this research and try to bring it back to your institution, right? And bring it into and and see if or how this could get incorporated. So that's that's a, a really good advice there. Um, the 
the the last question that I had kind of stemming from this discussion um, of this paper, right? Neurocritical care, everyone go um, download it, read it. Um, but the, the patients in the ticagrelor arm, they had a higher percentage of emergent or unplanned neuroendovascular procedures. And in the, in the paper, it says this wasn't an unexpected finding. Why, why would this, why, why do you say that? Why would this be something that was expected kind of going into this research? Um, I, I don't think that I expected it getting the results at once, finding the results and reflecting on practice. I don't think that it was surprising. So one thing that we found was that the majority of pay, or the difference between the two groups is that um, in the girl group, they're more likely to be planned procedures. In most of our practice um, who deal with these patients, we see that a patient has a planned stent, whether it's for, you know, aneurysm, like pr- prophylactically securing an aneurysm before a bleed. So we're teeing a patient up to get a flow diverting stent or a stent assisted coil, or we're teeing up an ICA um, stenosis patient to get that ICA stent, right? So we're putting on the aspirin and Plavix. The thing about it being planned is that we have the opportunity to monitor and make sure that they're in that um, appropriate therapeutic window for the PRU if you're using the P2Y12 monitoring. And then we can either switch agents or dose increase or reduce, right? So we can make sure that they are teed up for that stent. So that part wasn't surprising. Now, the fact that, you know, more of our patients had emergent procedures, and I think more specifically, there was a difference in um, the actual artery that was intervened on, so the basilar. So we had more patients in the tachyglar group have the basilar artery intervened on. As we all know, this is a very important artery that supplies the only artery that supplies blood to the brainstem, um, you can have devastating consequences if you thrombose that artery. And so our surgeons or neuroendovascular interventionalists are not willing to accept the risk of a patient being a clopidogrel non-responder. And so in those situations, whether it's either an emergent stent placement and they didn't have time to tee the patient up on clopidogrel or they're dealing with a very high-risk artery, they're more likely, in my practice experience, to just jump straight to Tecagalor to ensure that the patient is therapeutic. That makes sense. Like, like once you, and I'm sure that's kind of, once you reflected back and thought about it, it makes sense. And that's, that's kind of what my thought is as you, as you explain that. So that's, uh, this is really cool. And, you know, for those curious, you know, pull up this supplementary appendix and it gives a shout out to all the different centers, all of the other collaborators within the group. You know, this is, uh, um, it's it's as high it's it's as high quality of retrospective as we can right multi center um, and you know it notes out right this is all voluntary basis right no funding was achieved so shout out to everybody doing this trying to improve the care out of the goodness of their hearts so con- congrats on a job well done reach out to Casey let her know at Casey May Farm D uh, thanks for coming back Casey we uh, certainly appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me to continue to talk about, you know, my passionate, this is definitely in that subarachnoid um, <laughs> window as well as where this kind of started. But yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. This is on the Mount Rushmore of Casey's Neurotopics <laughs> right there. All right. So we got two out of the four. All right. We'll keep searching for the other one. So listeners, you're going to be the real winners there. All right. See you, Casey. <laughs> thanks. And joining us now all the way from Canada is Sharif 
Mahamud. Now, Sharif is an academic associate dean and clinical professor in the Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of Alberta. Find him on Twitter at Sharif Elizabeth. S-H-E-R-I-F-E-L-E-Z-A-B-Y. Thanks for joining us today. Sharif, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Nick? Thank you. Doing fantastic. So let the listeners know about this awesome neuro ARC study, and then we'll get into our Q&A afterwards. Okay, perfect. So that study is uh, uh, titled Prevalence of Augmented Renal Clearance in Neurocritical Care Population a prospective multi-center study. In short, we, I, I call it the NeuroArc study. It's, uh, so in summary, that augmented renal clearance, or ARC, is a recently described phenomena in, 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 of enhanced kidney function. And this has been reported in critically ill patients. And the issue of enhanced kidney function is actually super kidneys. And the super kidneys like might result in underdosing medication that are uh, renally eliminated and might re- result in therapy failure. Like that's why the attention being given like in this work. However, most of the ARC literature hasn't focused on neurocritical care patients and ARC is largely undetected using, using the common creatinine clearance equations like Cockrell and Gold and others. And because of that, we should find. We need to find a way to uh, to to identify ARC. One other thing in the neuroIC specifically, specifically, is actually the smaller study showed that the the percentage of ARC, the prevalence of ARC in those patients is way higher than the critical L, as I've seen the results of the study. Uh, so there is a need to identify the true prevalence and risk factors of ARC. So and try to find a way to identify this. So the overall, the overall goal of this study is to characterize the prevalence and risk factors of ARC. It's a prospective multi-center study at the University of Alberta Hospital, University of Kentucky. Uh, we, we recruited so far 70 patients. We plan to recruit uh, uh, more than 500 patients in a larger study. And we, and we will measure their kidney function, their creatinine clearance, using the eight-hour urine collection. Uh, we did the eight-hour urine collection and, and to identify who have an ARC as, by definition, creatinine clearance more than 130. We found that those patients who exhibited ARC are younger, more males than females, have uh, less disease severity as well. And we, uh, we enrolled patients with subarachnoidal hemorrhage, traumatic brain injury, and the percentage of ARC for those patients were not, ranges from 90 to 100%. However, we did also uh, intracerebral hemorrhage and status epilepticus ranges from 33 to 85%, ischemic stroke 70%. So as you can see, the numbers are way higher than actually what's reported in the general ICU population, which is approximately 30 to 40%. So like in, in summary, like we, we, we found that ARC is highly prevalent in those uh, population and probably like this underlined the fact that we need a way to identify those patients better outcomes well first off what a what an awesome study um you know your first author leading leading names that are certainly um familiar names to listeners of the pod melissa thompson bast and aaron cook so clearly you have an amazing research team with you so uh kudos now 
I want to ask a question because I think when when you when you hear the phrase urine collection, right? Even if it's just eight hours, everyone instantly just puts their hands up, like ah, we just can't do it. It's too much. So, but is this the only way? Are there other alternate ways to reliably identify that augmented renal clearance? Yeah, I agree. Urine collection is not really practical in a busy environment in the ICU, and, and so in day to day practice, uh, like. We I don't we don't do it in our center. So, but what the main aim of this study we we need to identify the risk factors of ARC in those populations by identifying those risk factors and prevalence using that urine collection, which is kind of the gold standard in the ICU. We'll be able to identify predictors of ARC. What does this mean? So, like after we finish the whole study with more than five hundred patients, we'll be able to create a prediction model to tell me like uh, if this patient has a certain age and, and, and text and, and these characteristics, this is a very high chance this patient will have an ARC. So like some sort of a prediction model, uh, like a, 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 a tool, we create a tool, like when the patient gets admitted to the ICU, we'll be able to know what are the chances that the patient has ARC instead of going into the urine collection. Unfortunately, the current uh, creatinine clearance equation for estimation of creatinine clearance equation, they underestimate the true prevalence of ARC. So hopefully, after we finish that study, we'll be able to find something that will provide, uh, to, like create a tool that helps identifying those patients. So what I'm hearing is, hopefully soon we will have more reliable, more reli- a more reliable way to calculate these. But right now, if you're truly worried that urine collection is truly the way at this point in time for all of us, true? Agreed, yes. So knowing we can't always accurately estimate renal function, how, how should we use this information that you just talked about, right? That the prevalence of augmented renal clearance in a neurocritical care population could be in the 80 to 90%, right? This one found 84%. How do we use this information when we're creating those empiric dosing regimens in these patients, knowing that we think it may be high, but we don't always know how high are things realistically as we're creating these? Yeah, great question. So currently there are studies uh, looking at the pharmacokinetics, like uh, the measuring the drug concentrations of many of the commonly used drugs in the ICU. And uh, uh, and those studies provide some suggested dosing recommendations. However, as a part two of our study, which actually what we are currently doing is to we are, we are uh, uh, collecting blood samples uh, for uh, patients treated with many of the commonly used renally eliminated medications, for example, the vitrocetam, the Percelin, Tazobactam, Cifibim, and so. So once we collect, we collect those uh, uh, levels, we collect those blood samples, we analyze their concentration, and what we do right now is, like, once we collect, like, have a good sample size, we'll be able to do pharmacokinetic modeling and simulation. In order, that simulation will like, we'll simulate the, what dosing needed in order to achieve the desired target. And once we know that, we'll be be able to provide dosing recommendations, solid dosing recommendations. But I'm not going to be like only uh, uh, focusing on our study. We also will get into consideration other studies that uh, did the pharmacokinetic sampling and did the simulations, and we'll combine them together 
So at the end, we'll have solid dosing recommendation. But for the current being, like actually now, like uh, uh, some medication monographs and some software, they provide some dosing recommendation in augmented renal clearance. However, they, 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 more work needs to be done in this area. So this last question, I feel like, is so much easier asked than than done. But when when do you all anticipate the larger study completing? Knowing that there's a lot of things that need to continue going right for for that to happen. But what's the anticipated day? When can we look for those results of the bigger study? Yeah, that, so that uh, bigger study is uh, duration is approximately five years. Hopefully, we 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 get uh, uh, complete results by by the end of 2026, early 2027. Well, well, we'll keep our eyes peeled, but this is this is really awesome preliminary data. I'm glad you took some time to come on and highlight this. And of course, if you were at the, the Neurocritical Care Society annual meeting, you saw Sharif's name all over the place presenting, headlining things. So thanks for all you do for us in that neurocritical care and pharmacy world, Sharif. We appreciate you. Thank you so much, Nick, and thank you for having me. Now, with us now is G. Lu, currently the trauma ICU pharmacist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. G., thanks for joining me. How are things on the East Coast today? Uh, it's a little bit rainy, Nick, but um, things are so far so good. So thank you for having me, uh, inviting me on the pod. So. Uh, the, the pleasure's mine. I'm excited to, to have you come on. Um, and let's talk about your, your uh, research um, project derivation and validation of an equation to predict free valproate concentrations in intensive care patients. So G, take it away. Yeah. So thanks, Nick. Um, so this is, a, I think, a very important uh, topic uh, because, you know, valproate remains a very highly used anti-seizure medication uh, with an expanded indication for bipolar disorder, for migraine, and obviously for seizure. And occasionally in ISV, we use it for um, behavioral uh, management as well. Um, so really, let's, uh, if you allow me to kind of set a background on this, um, because Valproate still remains a widely used um, medication. And we know that from the pharmacokinetic of Valproate, it's highly protein bound. And we know that, um, you know, 90% uh, of the Valproate is, you know, protein bound to albumin with 5 to 10% of the uh, concentration being unbound. And it's very important to note that the free or unbound valproate concentration is the pharmacologic active component um, that kind of that is kind of responsible for the uh, toxicity and also for the efficacy, efficacy of the drug. Um, so, you know, this is based on the, like, the old paper, um, you know, just in terms of therapeutic drug monitoring, we found that, you know, not a lot of uh, centers uh, do a lot of free valproate monitoring uh, on site. Um, so therefore, uh, you know, there's been this interest in doing uh, equation-based models in an effort to kind of uh, get uh, free valproate. And we know that ICU patients are more at risk for altered protein binding. And there's been increasing literature to show that ICU patients really see a lot, a much higher free fractions ranging from, you know, all the way from 15 to 89%. So 
what we did with this paper and what, with this research study is to kind of look at all the equations so far that's been um, trying to kind of uh, use to estimate three route probate. And, you know, we did a literature search and we are able to found, uh, find uh, five equations. Um, and we asked the questions like how can, how um, good are these equations in, in terms of estimating uh, free route pro-A uh, in ICU patients because all five equations are uh, from non-ICU mostly in the outpatient setting. So really the objective of our study is to first uh, validate uh, the existing equations um, and, the, and assess their performance in ICU patients and then to compare uh, its predictive performance to a novel equations uh, just uh, derived from our, uh, our cohort of ICU patients. So the way we go about doing that is to um, include, uh, this is a two-center study, both at Maine Medical Center and at Mayo Clinic, uh, and we included uh, patients over 18 or above who had both free and total rapoid concentration uh, collected. And we, co uh, we also collect other laboratory values such as their albumin, their blood urea, nitrogen, creatinine, and bilirubin. These factors have been reported to affect their uh, protein bindings of valproate and therefore may affect their free valproate uh, uh, fractions. So essentially what we did was we um, used our two, we divided the patient into two cohorts. Um, so we used a derivation cohort to derive our equation, and there were, and um, we included a separate cohort to validate our, equa our equation. And we used uh, the modified plan element plot. So for those who may not be uh, as familiar, it's essentially comparing uh, your estimated valproate, uh, free valproate to um, to the actual measure valproate concentration, and you will. Have the two measures of, uh, to kind of indicate the performance of the equation, which is the, the bias or how accurate your uh, e your uh, equation in estimating the patient's actual measure of free concentration. And then uh, there is just how precise or um, uh, the equation is. So we reported that, you know, the main findings of our results is that um, all existing equations perform pretty poorly in estimating free rate concentration in ICU patients with, um, you know, the mean bias of two all the way to nine. So kind of depending on the reference range you look at, um, commonly cited will be five to 15. So definitely these equations are not very accurate. And also in terms of uh, position, uh, these Equation we also found that it's not very precise with, you know, the um, the limits or agreement ranging from anywhere from 16 to 11. So definitely um, not very useful in clinical practice. Uh, in terms of the equation that we derived from our cohort, um, we found that even though our equation had, you know, uh, a bias of 0 0.3, um, we found that you know the limits or agreement is pretty wide. So therefore more work is definitely needed uh, to, you know, find an equation um, that kind of, you know, for centers that may not have this ability to measure free route rate or get timely route rate level, um, more work is needed to kind of find some uh, important, uh, find that uh, equation to estimate free route rate concentration.
Well, gee, this is uh, awesome research. I have a few questions because this is this is a, a really timely topic. I think it's something that all of us in the ICU we talk about, we struggle with sometimes. So, looking at um, VPA levels, how does timing, specifically when they are drawn, how do you think that affects the interpret the interpretability of the equation? Yeah, very good questions, and definitely. Uh, important question to ask whenever you see any equation-based uh, models to kind of estimate about pro um, So, you know, how what's their practice like at different centers? Like, do they measure free route pro and total route pro after the load or right before a trough and things like that? That definitely impacts the interpretability of the equations. So, for our our practice, we want to say that we typically will avoid post-loading levels. So therefore, um, we did not get the specific. Um, the, we do not have a specific in terms of this number of patients getting post, um, you know, a steady state, or um, because of in clinical practice, we, it's often not feasible to wait until steady state to get a total and three report level. So, but just in, uh, speaking of practice, most of our uh, the levels included will probably be um, before like a uh, like a one hour before low, uh, before the trial. Uh, well, no, sorry, one hour before the level is due, but we typically avoid post-load uh, levels. So you've clearly not only done research into it, but when you do research, right, you do a lot of looking into background of things, right? So in your mm-hmm. opinion, why do you think we're having such a hard time finding a validated equation to predict free valproate concentrations from total levels in the critically ill? Yeah, and that's uh, another important question to answer because, you know, not just about Port, right? But, and, you know, we've seen that story in Benny Chowen as well, yep. like um, how many equations and modify equations and follow up studies on Benny Chowen and trying to kind of get that, uh, get a good equation to estimate free Benny Chowen. Um, and it's a question that I, as I was doing this research and talking with our team, that, you know, it's, it's difficult, right? Because, we are trying um, to, you know, get an accurate estimation of um, a moment in time, right? Most of these things, like, for example, our study, we included just one set of level total and three, right? But we know that at least in ICU patients, things change. So, so for if I um, allowed me to give an example, for like an ICU patient who's on very high dose of propofol, where, you know, propofol can, you know, free fatty acids can bind and potentially uh, displace um, Valproate uh, from the albumin binding site. If these, if a patient's on higher dose of albumin, or if they're also in renal failure with high uremia and other risk factors, that you know, a patient with that many risk factors could potentially have a higher free fraction of Valproate, and therefore resulted in a higher free Valproate concentration. However, not all ICU patients are kind of the same, right? So, if a patient who is just there for monitoring in the ICU where they may where they may not have those risk factors, then you may imagine that while why having one set of equation may not be applicable to these two uh, kind of patient scenarios. So uh, I think that's why we kind of struggle in terms of finding an equation that works well in you know just all ICU patients. So just to speak a little bit in our cohort, uh, unfortunately our cohort does uh, did not include a lot of patients on propofol or. And initially, we uh, we went in thinking including a patient on intralipid. But however, our patient population also consists of very low patients on like TPN or 
fat emulsion and things like that. So uh, we are, this equation is definitely under power to detect those differences. So ongoing efforts definitely needed to kind of include those patients with, you know, um, more of those risk factors to see and, and more work is definitely needed to externally validate the equation that we put forth. I think propofol is such a great example too, because the patients that we're going to be wanting the most accurate free level in, right? They might be on high dose propofol for refractory status, right? Or they're on very high doses for like burst suppression or something like that. So I think that's a great example. And their time courses change, right? They might be on 50 mics per kilo per minute one day. And then three days later, they're down to 20. Should we be changing our regimen? So all... And they, uh, exactly, and and most of these equi- equations, they divide like you use one set of levels, right, for yeah. patients uh, at one moment in time, and I think it's uh, I think that's why it's very difficult. However, it's an important endeavor we believe in. Still, I mean, by all means, that we should kind of work with your lab to get through our poet insight. Uh, try your best, but I think if that that route has been already tried and. So uh, we run into limitation and that's the real life experience where we might not get any, all the things that we want, right? And because we're occasionally practicing like resource limited uh, settings. So therefore, it's, uh, endeavors like this, um, I think, still uh, worth pursuing so that, you know, in like community hospital or it's physically or, you know, it's not feasible for them to get these monitoring and it's an important uh, thing for the clinicians perhaps to use. Uh, in that, in the meantime, uh, for these patients. That's an important point talking about places that maybe don't have these on site, right? So for, as, as people are advocating as awesome researchers like you are trying to find equations and things for this, what would you recommend for those institutions if their lab doesn't have the capability for those timely levels? Like say, say a level is going to come back in a day or two like the, a free level. Is there, is there any utility in ordering that? Like what's, what kind of pearls or things can you give for some of those other institutions? Yeah. Um, that's a very good point. Um, so I think, um, I mean, first, like I already mentioned that, you know, definitely work with your, my, um, with your lab to see if yep. to explore that possibility. If, uh, we, if there is a possibility that you can bring free route for it, definitely, I, I would definitely support, you know, attempting that first. However, if that's not a feasible route, and we know from data that that's kind of older that, you know, only like, I, I want to say like 3% of the laboratory in the United States actually offer assays or free route pro And recently we did, um, I think we put out a survey on AACCP, and mind you, not a lot of, not all the centers are uh, participating in that survey, but overall we still see a pretty low percentage um, of hospitals that actually um, have the capability of measuring free route rate in-house. So it's definitely, um, we see that, um, you know, the centers are still not getting that. So therefore, uh, it's one of the reasons why we are pursuing this research project to put out that, um, put this forward. And, um, but to answer your question, Nick, um, you know, would I, is it a, like, are, are there utility to measuring that? I think, I think so especially from our data that, you know, with all the existing equations, right, we overall we found that because these equations are not um, derived and, you know, in ICU patients, we found that the performance are really not great, right? Um, so definitely if you, even if it doesn't come back in a day, it's definitely a utility in measuring that free uh, rate levels, even though you might come back in maybe not the same day, but two or three days. And I would suggest that, you know, once the patient, 
evaluate the patient's risk factors, especially if the patient's on like higher dose propofol or if they have uremia, like, you know, BU, high BU and, and other risk factors, then those would, have, would be the patient that I would definitely would want to check a free route pro level. And that might subsequently, even if it comes back two or three days later, that might still impact your, your dosing, um, especially if this is a drug with a narrow therapeutic index. Um, I, and I will consider, right, in the meantime, you can consider using our equation. Our equation is def- definitely limited by the Y limits of agreement. But however, it does have the lowest bias uh, of all the existing equations. So one thing I would consider doing is that, you know, we can use our equation to estimate free valproate and send out a, on, on an actual measure of the patient's total, um, total and free valproate and see how the equation performs, right? So if you actually find out it's actually pretty close, then whereas you, you can kind of validate, oh, oh, this equation is not working for this patient because it's not one of the uh, patient that will be well represented in our in our uh, cohort or if the patient's actually like we're spot on right so that's kind of important information so definitely our equations should be used very cautiously because it definitely requires more external validation however it should be used kind of like as a mark for estimation and and, and if the measure free well free actually kind of coincide very closely with the estimate of VPA equation that, that then that's a kind of a good uh, a good, you know, signal that maybe for that patient it is um, represented. So, yeah, I don't have a great answer. I think this is still like a kind of a um, a lot of efforts need to be, you know, kind of put into this um, to kind of. I think one of the most important, um, you know, research question moving forward is so, you know, we three of our point um, ranges, right? Like what are the what are the actual free valproate we should be targeting? Like we use these reference range of five, fifteen, five, seventeen, depending on what you looked at. But you know we need definitely need more rigorous research in in terms of interpreting like what are actually efficacious concentration on toxicity, free uh, um, uh, valproate con- like concentration that needs to be further elucidated in further research. Well, I. And uh, for the listeners, right, the go to pharmacytodose.com, you'll see, um, geez, we'll have a copy of the of the poster up. So that equation that, that he's referencing, you'll be able to see that. Um, and I mean, you gave the listeners not only one, but two options to consider as we're figuring this out. So there's not a perfect answer, right? But we're trying to find the best fit line and we have a few a few options to try to do that. So, uh, G, thank you so much for sharing this awesome research, for continuing to do this and and for coming on the pod and letting all the all the listeners know about it. So we appreciate you very much. Yeah, thank you, Nick, for offering this opportunity and uh, thank you for all the work you do. Um, and I would just want to give a shout out to, um, you know, my mentor, Dr. Dave Gannon and Dr. Riker for, you know, and also the just our entire team for, you know, giving the support on this. It's been a long and <laughs> a long process, so uh, it won't be done, you know, without them. And uh, they offer so much insights and we are looking for on the collaboration on this. So if your institution does have a lot of free valproate uh, concentration or have the capability to monitor free valproate concentration, definitely reach out to me and we're looking for uh, more collaboration on this to kind of, um, you know, externally validate the equation and definitely look into the ranges and toxicity and whatnot. So, um, and yeah, thank you. Thank you. 
Now, our next special guest is Veronica Bondersky. Now, Veronica is a neuroscience ICU clinical pharmacist specialist at the University of Chicago Medicine. Uh, find her on Twitter at Veronica B Farm D. Oh, that's got a fun ring to it. Hello, Veronica. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Doing great. Um, thanks so much for joining um, to highlight the the awesome research that you presented at NCS, the effect of IV push, levetiracetam, and lecosamide implementation on turnaround times and cost. So I'm going to let the, the floor is yours to kind of give us an overview of this study and talk about what you all found. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, so in March 2022, our institution made the decision um, to switch over administering our IV levetiracetam and lecosamide doses as an undiluted IV push as opposed to a dose prepared in the IV room. Um, we did that, you know, as all the data has come out in the last few years about the safety of this practice, um, we went ahead and, and decided to go for it. Um, so the, the purpose of our, our project was to look at and see if um, our turnaround times for when the providers were entering the doses into EPIC um, to when they were being charted and administered, um, if there was an improvement in that. And then we also wanted to look at if there was cost savings associated with this intervention. So um, we looked at 11 months prior to us implementing um, this practice change and 10 months after and compared those times and costs. Um, we looked specifically at one-time doses of both of these medications um, because those, as you know, tend to be the SAT one-time loading doses um, during emergencies, and, and we didn't think that we were going to end up actually seeing that much of a difference in the scheduled doses. Um, so we wanted to look at those one-time um, doses, and we looked at all of our patients, um, all adult patients within our hospital. Um, our primary endpoint, like I mentioned, was time from order entry to medication administration. We also looked at those drug costs, and then we also did a retrospective review of all the safety events that were submitted by our nurses, pharmacists, and physicians, um, what have you, to see if there were any kind of red flags that we needed to address as time went on. Um, so when we looked at the doses of IV levetiracetam prior to administration, uh, or excuse me, prior to implementation, we had 510 one-time doses, and the median turnaround time was 81 minutes. After we made that change, um, our turnaround time house-wide um, was a median of 24 minutes. Um, for lecosamide, we saw a similar trend. Um, for housewide, we had 73 doses prior to the change, and the, the median time to administration was 128 minutes. After implementation, um, we got that down to 41 minutes. So we were really pleased um, with how this, how this went. And when we broke it down um, into emergency department doses and doses given in our neuro ICU, we saw similar trends. Um, kind of in those subgroups. When we looked at the, the safety events that were being submitted um, during this kind of change, we didn't have any lacosamide um, events, but we did see levetiracetam events come through. Um, we had four related to stocking out in our omnicells, which was an easy change. You know, there was a little bit of growing pains as we figured out where this drug needed to be stocked and what the PAR levels were. Um, but we also had five events related to ordering errors and administration errors. And the reason for that was when we rolled this out, we decided we were giving levetiracetam doses as an IV push all the way up to the 4,500 milligram max dose. And in order to kind of capture the USP 797 concerns associated with this, we originally split out the orders and created an order set 
that broke each dose into 1500 milligram aliquots or, you know, rounded it to things that made sense. So for example, a three gram dose was two orders of 1500 milligrams back to back, or a two gram dose was 1500 followed by another 500. Um, and what we were finding is that occasionally the nurses were interpreting this as duplicate orders or the providers were getting a little confused when they were trying to order it and would try to, to modify it in Epic. Um, and then the incorrect dose ended up getting ordered. Um, so what ended up happening was um, we took this back to our med safety team um, and they actually allowed us to change over the single syringe administration for all of the doses. Um, so that is something that was going on in the background while we were making this change that could have influenced some of our numbers. Um, but just wanted to, to throw that out there for any um, other institutions that are looking at making this change. And then lastly, we looked at cost. Um, there was no difference in lacosamide costs. Um, we kind of think that's probably related to it being a controlled substance, and we definitely have a tighter control on where those doses end up throughout the hospital. But we definitely did see some changes for levetiracepam. Um, we captured this by looking at what our percentage um, of WAC purchasing that we had um, pre and post implementation. Um, and the reason we did this is because we actually had a very large uptick in IV levetiracetam use after we made the change. Um, there's a couple of reasons why we think this happened. One, our trauma volume exploded. Um, so we were giving a lot of one-time doses in the emergency department. Um, and also, not entirely sure that all of the one-time doses were captured in that initial phase because we did exclude any doses that were made by an ICU pharmacist or an emergency medicine pharmacist at the bedside, um, because that was something that was going on. We had some vials stocked in other places before we made this big change, and people were compounding bags at bedside. Um, so it was hard to get like a firm dollar amount, like this is exactly how much we saved. So how we quantified this was our WAC purchasing. Um, so prior to implementation, 42% of our purchasing for levetiracetam was going to WAC, and now it's 28%. Um, like I said, I couldn't get a hard number, but ballpark, um, that was about $1,500 to $2,000 a month we were saving on IV levetiracetam for our institution. Um, so overall, really happy. We, we saw some definite improvements in our turnaround times, and, and the cost piece of it is always a bonus. So um, we're really, really happy with how, how this all went. Yeah, kudos on almost a, a three times reduction in time to administration from order entry. That's that's so great, and I love that you highlighted. I think I think if you if you had to take a poll nationwide of pharmacists, I would say more than fifty percent probably have a specific drawer reserved for some sort of stat <laughs> drug. Is it Kepra? Ours is like PCC. We'll keep the stuff, the supplies and stuff for there. So I think everyone has a has things there now. Um, you mentioned around this time, we've had a lot of literature kind of being published on this same change. Was it, was it the, was it the literature itself or was it more specific things like the, the needing to, to kind of hole away drugs and things that, that led to this change, um, from IV piggyback to IV push? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it was a combination of both. Um, uh, I know all of us in the ICU and the emergency department, we're always looking for ways to get drugs to our patients faster. And I think we were already looking into how to do this and making changes in other areas of the kind of the workflow. Um, and then when this, once this data came out, that was kind of like the final push 
to go ahead and, and bring this um, to our, you know, kind of administrative group and try to push it through. And I think the I think that was a really good example of um, when you talk about the change in IV push of a lot of times you'll um, when you roll out a new policy or protocol, there's something inevitable that you're unable to think about, especially when it's electronic order entry and things. So was it did did you all have a plan to like reevaluate this at a specific time or was it one of them where like you all just kind of saw one of them or a couple docs came to you and then it was a snowball effect from there? Yeah, when we originally took this to our, our med safety committee, um, we did have a plan to follow up and kind of re-report um, our findings um, a couple of months later. Um, but as it was rolling out, we did also get kind of those one-off questions from our nurses and providers, um, which was great because then we were able to have kind of boots on the ground experience and um, from them that we could take to med safety when that kind of the official review was up. Um, so it was, a, it was a combination of both. Um, before we rolled this out, we did reach out to other centers and try to see, you know, what kind of problems they had to uh um, to kind of keep an eye out for, but like you said, there's stuff that always comes up and this definitely happened for us too. Well, this is such a great, a great study. I mean, you're talking about reduced time to administration in this, in these time sensitive disease states and things you're talking about saving costs. Now, Veronica, we only need one thing and we need the manufacturers of Kepra or Levetiracetam to make a freaking 4.5 gram vial so i don't feel <laughs> like saint nick with a with a stocking when i have to go do the 4.5 grams i got nine vials in my pocket that you're going to the room so that's the next move we need that is that's yeah. the only we've you've made significant progress but um when when we've made that change, we'll have you back on, Veronica, to really tout the the <laughs> total victory. Um, but what an awesome awesome research project! So glad you uh, took the time to share the results with us and these ideas. Um, so appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And our next research highlight is what we like to call a twofer. We are uh, very lucky to be joined by two guests. We're going to be focusing on one of their research um, presentations, and uh, we'll kind of hit on one of their others. Um, so I'm very lucky to be joined by Solomon Almaheish and Gretchen Brophy. Now, Solomon is an assistant professor at King Faisal University, the College of Clinical Pharmacy, and an affiliated neurocritical care researcher at VCU School of Pharmacy. And Gretchen Brophy is a professor of pharmacotherapy and outcome science and neurosurgery. Uh, thank you both for joining me, taking time out of your day. How are you all doing? Thank you. Thanks. For thank you. Um, so what were the, the research we were going to try to highlight today, uh, neurostimulant prescription rates in patients with neurologic injuries. So, um, I know Solomon's gonna be taking the lead on kind of giving the overview and then they'll Gretchen and Solomon will both be tag teaming questions and those kinds of things. So Solomon, the floor is yours, my friend. Well, thanks you, Nick. Thanks for having me on your podcast. So, uh, for, for this study, we know that neurostimulants have been used in multiple uh, neurological entries, and uh, we know that there are so many neurostimulant agents have been used. So our question came is, which one uh, has more frequency of prescription? 
rate compared to the other uh, in each uh, specific neuro injury. So we went through uh, the uh, Virginia all-payer claims data, tried to include all patients with a prescription for neurostimulants for uh, specific neuro neurological diseases such as uh, TBI, uh, ischemic stroke, and uh, intracranial hemorrhage, and also subarachnoid hemorrhage. So we tried to include all of these patients between the period of 2015 to 2021. Uh, we looked into a prescription rates or any any uh, new prescription for uh, after the discharge from the hospital uh, until 90 days of the discharge. So we tried to include all of these new prescriptions, and we were uh, fortunate to, to include uh, 2,787 patients from around 1.5 million cases or patients. Uh, so we we included these cases. Uh, the most frequent uh, injury type that we saw was uh, ischemic stroke and traumatic brain injury compared to other uh, neurological injuries that we mentioned uh, previously. Uh, the most commonly prescribed agent was uh, Zolpidem. Uh, after that was Carbidova, Lipidova, and uh, Amentadine. So those uh, the three agents uh, came up on the top. Uh, amphetamine was also and methylphenidate uh, were one of the top drugs uh, with around 9 to 7% uh, for both of them. Uh, we didn't see any trends uh, throughout the years between 2015 to 2021. Uh, the trend was almost the same between all the years except the single year, which we think was a flaw in the data uh, for the all payers data. Uh, for the traumatic brain injury, the most commonly uh, prescribed agent was Zolpidem. After that, uh, the Carpidova, Levodopa, uh, and methylphenidate had uh, 9% prescription rate. Uh, amphetamine uh, or amentadine had the 9% uh, also prescri prescribing rate. Uh, that's that's uh, for the ischemic stroke. For the traumatic brain injury, Zolpidem uh, had 25% prescribing rate. Amphetamine had 17% of prescribing rate. So these two also uh, agents are for one of the top agents that were prescribed. We know that uh, there's some uh, co-founders that could happen with Zolpidem as uh, some of these cases may have been uh, prescribed Zolpidem for sleep disorders, not only neurological injuries. So that could be the case with the high frequency of these prescription on Zolpidem compared to other usual neurostimulants such as uh, methylphenidate and amantadine. Uh, so our conclusion was uh, we didn't find any uh, significant difference between the years, but we were able to tell that these agents that were mostly prescribed and uh, all of the neurological injuries that we looked at. Yeah, and uh, I would just like to add, you know, in these patients, uh, there's never been anybody, in, or there's never been any uh, data really out there on, you know, which patients are receiving the neurostimulants and if there's any trends in what's prescribed. And that's another reason why we wanted to do this study. And uh, we did look at multiple different um, neurostimulants. And uh, within our data set, just to add the ischemic stroke patients, we had the most ischemic stroke patients in this data set. And then the second most highest was the TBI. So when we're looking at the drugs and the percentages of the different agents used, um, that's why the ischemic stroke patients probably had, um, you know, more just because we had more patients in that group. Uh, we did see the difference, as Solomon said, within the agents that were prescribed. 
So um, with methylphenidate and amantadine and um, amphetamines, which we usually think of as neurostimulants um, that we would use in somebody with a neurologic injury, to uh, we actually saw those in the traumatic brain injury patients um, more so than we did in ischemic stroke patients, which is something we would have guessed, I think, to, that that would have been the case. Um, with the Zolpidem, it was very interesting just to see that that was the top uh, drug used in both cases. And as Solomon said, uh, we included it because it actually can have paradoxical awakenings in patients. And so we, we thought that might be something we would see. But again, with it being so high, uh, we probably uh, assumed that that was probably used for sleep, which is another very interesting point for these patients with neurological injuries in that, you know, um, 25% uh, you know, of the, the drugs prescribed to them of these ones that we looked at were sulfidem. So probably a lot of these patients are having some sleep disturbances as well, which is common with some of these neurologic injuries. So it's the first study really to get show us up in the trends uh, for neurostimulants in these patients with neurologic injury. And, and we're hoping now to, you know, dive into this a little deeper and see if we can uh, use this database to uh, quantify a little bit more about what's happening uh, in our patients in regards to neurostimulant prescription. Did these results surprise you, whether it's the patient populations that were the highest or Zolpidem being the highest drugs? Like, was that a, was that a surprise to you all? Uh, I think Zolpidem being up in the top was a surprise. Uh, but then when we went back to think about the these cases and everything, we started to dig down and feel like, yes, maybe most of the cases were prescribed Zolpidem because of the sleep disturbances, not truly for the stimulant effect of the Zolpidem. So we, we started to think about this, like going back to the data and maybe try to exclude these patients and get the true number of Zolpidem as well. So that's, that's part of it in our mind. Uh, we were, yes, thinking TBI could be up on the top, uh, but as we looked into our demographics, we saw both actually uh, TBI and uh, acute ischemic stroke are on the top uh, of our patients. So based on that, we thought, okay, then it, it tells everything in here that probably neurostimulants is in both of them, not only in TBI cases. Is there a way in this database to determine what were pre-existing prescriptions compared to what were new prescriptions maybe started as inpatients? Yes. Uh, so uh, when we started to plan for the study, we tried to, you know, uh, take this into account and we basically excluded all patients who had prescription for a, neuros a neurostimulant before the date of the admission. So anyone who had a prescription for a neurostimulant 90 days before the admission or to the hospital was excluded to just get a true feeling of patients with a new prescription of neurostimulant after 90 days of admission. So we wanted to take into account these new cases and new prescriptions. Well, what a great job. I mean, characterizing, like, like you all have said, this is the first time we kind of have data like this. So um, awesome work. Um, I love the insight there. Now um, we tease at the beginning you all had you all had not one but two research posters here to highlight, which is awesome. Um, so, I mean, give us like a little a little brief overview of the second one. So, the second one was a post hoc uh, analysis 
of uh, vitamin C study we did on uh, our TBI patients. The first study, we tried to look into vitamin C levels in our TBI cases. And after that, we started to think about, okay, what about looking into uh, patients who actually received uh, statin therapy at home and continue to be on statin on, on admission or on hospital uh, and take into account, look into their biomarkers. Have these statin actually helped with the inflammatory process in TBI patients or not? Uh, so we separated patients to two groups, statin versus not. Uh, tried to look into anti uh, or inflammatory biomarkers uh, and such as interleukin 10, interleukin 8, and 6, and TNF alpha. Uh, we saw uh, interle interleukin 10 is a anti-inflammatory interleukin. So we were thinking that anti uh, interleukin 10 would go at least uh, up with the statin patients, but we didn't see any difference. Uh, but with interleukin 6 and 8, we saw a decrease uh, for statin patients, and both of these, interleukin 6 and 8, have been associated with poor outcomes uh, for TBI cases. So that was a good thing to uh, recognize in this uh, study. Uh, so, yeah, uh, we just started to take it out and, uh, you know, make this poster and show the people out there that maybe statin have a beneficial effect uh, with, uh, TBI. However, uh, due to our uh, small sample size and uh, GCS of 15 for most of the cases, we weren't able to measure something clinically different between all groups. Just to clarify, this group of patients that we used, um, for this study, again, they were patients that had non-penetrating traumatic brain injuries and, but I had a positive CT scan. So it wasn't like they were mild that were just discharged from the hospital. Um, even though they had GCS scores of 15. Um, we did exclude patients, though, with polytrauma just to try um, to eliminate some of the confounders of the polytrauma that would have on these um, these interleukin levels. And, uh, and so we feel like, you know, the lower pro-inflammatory uh, interleukin concentrations that we did observe, you know, in the statin group, shows some trends that, you know, may be something that we continue to study in the future. And to add to Gretchen as well, so also most of the frequent or more, the most frequent agent that was used uh, on these patients was mostly atorvastatin. So if we would think about uh, intensity, it would be somewhere between moderate to severe to high intensity statin. But this is still all like in a small group of patients and we can't tell 100% if it's truly related to atorvastatin by itself or a different statin as well. Well, Solomon Gretchen, thank you so much for joining us, letting the listeners know this awesome research that you all presented at NCS and clearly um, awesome things coming from Richmond. So appreciate all you, you all have done for, uh, for us in the pharmacy and the neuro critical care world. So appreciate it. Yeah. Thank, you. thank you. Thank you very much. So joining me now is Madeline Mitchell. Now, Madeline is an internal medicine pharmacist with the University of Louisville Hospital in Louisville, Kentucky. Find her on Twitter at Madeline M. Mitch. Madeline, thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks for having me today. So I have to ask, right, we're neighbors in a sense, Louisville, Indianapolis. So if I would have pronounced it, right, Louisville, which all the Kentuckians are like cringing listening would you have corrected me? I'm just curious how how strongly it the the Louisville versus Louisville bothers bothers you personally. 
Yes, I definitely would have corrected you. I've only been here for two years, but I've definitely uh, learned the slang and I would have corrected you, but you, you hit the nail right on the head. Love that. All right. First test passed. All right. Um, well, thanks for joining us. I'm going to give you the floor to talk about uh, your awesome research study, the effect of melatonin on the use of antipsychotic medications in the intensive care unit. Perfect. Thank you again, Nick. I also just wanted to say a shout out to my research team, Lindsay Whitecamp, Kristen Livers, and Rachel Lewis. They also played a, a big part in this research project. But as you all know, Delirium is common for our patients that are admitted to the ICU. I always say there's plenty of better places to sleep than in the ICU or simply just really the hospital in general. Uh, It's thought that the risk of delirium is increased among patients with circadian rhythm disruptions and poor sleep quality, hence why melatonin and its effects on the regulation of circadian rhythm is an appealing treatment option in the setting of delirium. In previous literature, melatonin has shown conflicting results when studied for sleep improvement and the prevention of delirium in the ICU. And the current PADIS guidelines make no recommendations for the use of melatonin in the ICU. So really, our mainstay of therapy for delirium continues to be antipsychotic medications. But there are risks associated with these, right, Um, especially in comparison to the safety and tolerability of melatonin. The purpose of our study was to evaluate the effect of melatonin on the use of antipsychotic medications in the ICU, specifically in the neurological ICU population, which may be predisposed to delirium. This is a single-centered retrospective case control study looking at a total of 200 patients admitted to our neurosciences ICU here at UofL Hospital. We looked at about a a two-and-a-half-year time period, and patients were excluded if they were taking an antipsychotic medication prior to admission or had suspected alcohol withdrawal. Majority of our patients included were around 60 years of age or older. They were mechanically ventilated with most of the common diagnosis being intracranial hemorrhage and ischemic stroke. Our primary outcomes included incidence of antipsychotic medication use and total daily dose of antipsychotic medications, which we calculated as quetiapine milligram equivalents. We also looked at a variety of secondary outcomes related to length of stay, time to initiation of both antipsychotics as well as melatonin, adverse effects, and the continuation at discharge. Our our results of the study showed that melatonin did not significantly alter the use of antipsychotic medications or daily antipsychotic requirements. The incidence of antipsychotic use was similar among groups with about 45% in the melatonin group and 46% in the control group receiving an antipsychotic during their admission. The median daily antipsychotic dose in quetiapine equivalents was 43.8 milligrams in the melatonin group and 50 milligrams in the control group. Given the retrospective nature of our study, melatonin doses were not standardized, but the median melatonin dose administered was 5 milligrams daily. And in our subgroup analysis, patients on melatonin doses 5 milligrams or greater were observed to have a lower median daily dose of antipsychotics, although we did not find a statistically significant difference in this. Another interesting finding I wanted to be sure to touch on because I wouldn't be a true internal medicine pharmacist without talking about transitions of care. Our study did show overall high rates of continuation of antipsychotics at discharge in both groups with 27.5% in the melatonin group and 37% in the control group. Although continuation may have been appropriate in a few of these cases, it is worth noting given the potential long-term adverse effects of antipsychotics. So discontinuation of antipsychotics at discharge or even when the patient's being downgraded from the ICU to the floor 
I think is a very key intervention for pharmacists to really optimize our transitions of care. Well, what a what a great study idea. I think my first question that, that came to mind, you know, going through the paper, the um, I'm curious because uh, one of the statements on the conclusion said that, you know, there was a um, patients getting greater than five milligrams of melatonin. They showed a a uh, lower uh, non-statistically significant daily dose of antipsychotics. But based on what you've seen here and the research that you've seen, do you think patients should receive more than five milligram as our empiric melatonin treatment dose? Should we be going to like six, nine, or 10? Or what do you think? Yeah, so the optimal dose of melatonin is unclear. And really in our previous literature also utilizes a variety of different dosing strategies, even differing from our study here. Um, I did want to note, though, we wanted to tease this out in our study a little bit more, uh, but our institution only stocks one milligram, three milligram, and then five milligram tablets. Um, so the ordering strengths were a little limited, and our pre-built orders in our current EMR um, are usually three milligrams and five milligrams. So that's kind of what we thought uh, was kind of why the median dose was five milligrams, just for ease of ordering. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. So although we didn't find a statistically significant difference with five milligrams or greater compared to lower doses, we did see a trend towards lower antipsychotic dose requirements. So I would probably recommend at least five milligrams, if not 10 milligrams, given me- melatonin is relatively benign, it's well tolerated. Uh, but I also wanted to add to, we have to consider that the potential confounder here is that melatonin is not regulated by the FDA, right? So the composition and potency can't necessarily be guaranteed from the products we have at our our institution um, compared to the next institution. Yeah, that's a really good point. You could certainly see pharmacist fingerprints if orders were getting changed to greater than five milligrams. Because most of the time, if it's if it's not the pre-orderable button, they kind of a lot of people assume that's the max dose. So, shout out to the pharmacists that I'm assuming were involved in some of those. Um, you know, you mentioned you converted everything into quetiapine equivalents. So, how were you able to do that? And then, what was in general your most common antipsychotic that was used in this study? Yeah, so the most commonly used antipsychotic by far um, here at our institution and in the study was quetiapine, followed by haloperidol as kind of an IV alternative. Uh, when we were designing the study, we really wanted to try to figure out a way for statistics purposes and to kind of relate all the antipsychotic requirements as a whole rather than looking at individual agents. Um, so we actually came across the antipsychotic equivalence table that's published by the American Association of Psychiatric Pharmacists. And we decided to convert all of the antipsychotics that were used in this study to quetiapine, given this is our most commonly utilized agent here um, at University of Louisville Hospital. So a little bit less work for me on the back end for data collection. And I think that's probably pretty standard. I think maybe the Mind USA, there's probably some Zaprazidone users, but more or less, I'm guessing that's probably pretty representative of the general, um, you know, critical care population as well. Um, that makes sense. And you're exactly right. Anything that makes it a little easier for the researcher, we will we will accept with open and loving arms. <laughs> um, so you mentioned transitions of care. Now, hey, we're trying to do our work in the ICU. Um, but yes, you all in the internal medicine field are certainly the pros pro at this. And so I wanted to end with a question kind of related to that, right? So in this study, 
30 to 35% of patients had their antipsychotics continued at discharge. And that's something I think we're pretty attuned of. There's been a lot of literature coming out, but 45% of them had melatonin continued. So why do you think the rates were so high here? And how do you think, you know, us as pharmacists can kind of help in this scenario in a, in a de-prescribing kind of fashion? Yeah, so I think you make a really important point on antipsychotic de-prescribing. I think our study definitely highlights the importance of this concept. Uh, I did want to mention that given our patient population was a neuro ICU patient population, several of these patients are discharging to acute inpatient rehab, subacute rehab, where there may still pose a risk for delirium and definitely poor sleep quality. So that may explain a little bit of the overall high rates of both antipsychotic and melatonin continuation at discharge. I think as far as principles for pharmacists to um, emphasize antipsychotic de-prescribing, I think it really starts with the question of, do we really even need the antipsychotic in the first place, right? So have we optimized our non-pharmacologic measures prior to utilizing and jumping to our pharmacologic antipsychotic options? Oftentimes, the answer is yes, especially in the ICU, Um, but I think that we should just continue to reevaluate this on a daily basis and determine when discontinuation is appropriate, and especially if that patient begins to improve, they're being extubated, their care is being downgraded to the medicine floor. Um, I definitely think that it's a constant reevaluation process of when we can look to discontinue those antipsychotics. And then definitely whenever they're about to head out the door at discharge, Uh, doing our part in reviewing those uh, medications and making sure that we get those antipsychotics discontinued if it's appropriate. Well, what an awesome study. Not only was it, um, I'm glad it got some, the, some love at the neurocritical care annual meeting, but I appreciate you taking the time to come on and highlight it for all, all the listeners coming and sharing some of your expertise. So Madeline, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me, Nick. I appreciate your time. Now, our next special guest is Ifoma Ofebuna. Now, Ifoma is an emergency medicine clinical pharmacy specialist at Memorial Hermann Memorial City Hospital in Houston, Texas. Find her on Twitter at Ifoma. And if you're curious, Ifoma's got four A's, which I appreciate. Uh, Ifoma, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm so happy to be a part of the podcast. Very, very excited. I can unashamedly admit that I definitely fangirled fangirled when I met you in person. So this is like full circle moment for me. It made my day for the listeners, just so everyone is very clear of whose day was made. It was certainly me. Um, High praise. The honor is mine. I'm so glad that that we get to, to highlight your awesome research. So let's kind of get into it here. So pharmacists decrease the number of protocol discordant four factor PCC orders for oral anticoagulant associated intracranial hemorrhage in a community emergency department. So if I'm going to take it away. Of course. So this was a single center retrospective study um, that kind of encompassed from January 2016 to December 2022. Kind of as you mentioned in the title, um, we're looking at the number of protocol discordant four-factor PCCs that were um, being ordered in patients presenting with an ICH, likely due to an oral anticoagulant. And just looking at some of the other factors that may have contributed to whether the four-factor PCC was appropriately ordered and dosed. 
So just briefly, in the last few years, our institution transitioned from weight-based dosing of four-factor PTC to fixed dose, but we saw the same trend in both, in both groups. So the presence of an emergency medicine pharmacist at the bedside really helped to curb inappropriate ordering of four-factor PCC and improve time to administration. I mean, I guess to toot our own horn, it's no real big surprise that having emergency medicine pharmacists at the bedside is essentially saving lives. But it's always nice to be able to kind of get the numbers on a poster on, on an, in an abstract and really look at how much of a difference are we truly making. On average, our presence there shaved like about 37 minutes compared to um, the group in which the emergency medicine pharmacist was absent. Again, I would call that a big win. Um, some of the biggest trends we saw was that the discoordinate orders primarily happened overnight um, when we're essentially relying on our skeleton crew. And thus it's, it's pretty obvious that that crew is very busy supporting the weight of the hospital. So it's no big surprise, but it's definitely just very telling and hoping that that's um, going to help lead us towards hopefully more coverage in the future. Um, again, in both groups, we did see that the majority of patients presented were on a Pixivan at home. Well, what an awesome study. I think one of the questions that, that I wanted to ask, because obviously when we're comparing um, the role of the pharmacist in this process, that would imply that there's some time where a pharmacist isn't there. So what, like in, in this uh, uh, center, what's the pharmacist coverage in the emergency department? For sure. So currently we are a very small team. So there's two full-time emergency medicine pharmacists. So it's me and my partner. Um, we alternate between seven days on, seven days off, and we're doing about 10 hours of coverage on our, you know, when we're actually there. So we also have two PRN ED pharmacists, um, but again, um, there's there's a gap of coverage. So that's usually your overnight to early morning hours. Um, so essentially, again, our day-to-day -day hours are like 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. So trying to hit the prime time, but again, big gap. Well, anybody that's, I mean, kudos, kudos to you too, because anyone knows that when you, when you have to start some sort of program like this, especially a clinical program, it can, it can take some legwork getting it off the ground. So, uh, kudos to you both. Clearly some good things happening here. Um, now how is the PCC prepared? Is it like when the pharmacist is there, are they mixing it at bedside or are we, cashing in our chips, calling the IV room and, and making it um, and just having them make it in a more timely fashion? For sure. No, that's a really good question. Um, so that's, currently we're working really closely with our IV room um, pharmacists and our central pharmacists to um, pretty much if, you know, when I'm there and when my partner is there, we're anticipating when it's going to be ordered. We're kind of already calling the central pharmacist to give them the heads up. Um, proactively putting in the order, trying to figure out the exact factor count to, you know, type in, in the actual order. And then I will go and pick it up if I can. And just, again, expediting from um, uh, medication ordering to medication administration and arrival at the bedside. And then what are, what's next on the plans? Like what are, what are future as you're kind of looking into the steps forward to do with this research? What are, what are kind of things going in, in your and your partner's heads? Ideally at some point, I don't know if my, one of our business man, our business manager will like this, but I would like to see, you know, I think that there's room for this to be done at the bedside to shave even more time, right? 
um, maximize, op, you know, optimize our what we can do. We're seeing that we're we're doing a pretty good job with our current process, but there's still room for even better optimization. And of course, the obvious is that I want more. I want a bigger team so we can capture those gaps and we can um, just really operate at the the best and the highest that we can provide for our patients. Well, um, studies like this showing all the improvements that that you're adding to the multidisciplinary care of those uh, patients in the emergency department, that's certainly how it gets started. So, um, Ifoma, thanks so much for, for coming on, highlighting this uh, awesome research. Uh, thank you so much for the kind words and uh, appreciate your um, expertise in talking about all this stuff. Yeah, of course. I'm so happy to be here again. Full circle moment. I think I shed a tear um, just being here, feeling like the, the beginning of my stardom is really happening today. So I really do appreciate being here and how welcoming you have been. Well, when you become famous and a star, don't forget about all of us lowly folks, okay? You promise? <laughs> of course I promise. <laughs> if that ever happens. <laughs> Now joining us now, recurring guest, friend of the pod, Andy Webb, uh, for those unfamiliar neurocritical care clinical pharmacist at Massachusetts General Hospital and creator of NeuroWise, a website he created to share deep dives and thoughts on pharmacotherapy in neurocritical care. He is on Twitter at AJW Farm. Andy, how are you? Thanks for joining us today. Not, not too bad. Thanks again for having me, Nick. Pleasure to be here. So... Not shocking with all the awesome research that you're doing that at the Neurocritical Care uh, Society annual meeting, you were uh, presenting posters there. And I wanted to to give you the platform to kind of highlight um, a discussion into, um, I guess you'd say, the eBoost sub-study. So I'm going to give you the floor to kind of let the listeners know what your research was and, and kind of what you ultimately found. Yeah, definitely. And thanks again for having me on the podcast and being able to talk a little bit about this. Yeah, one of the uh, the posters I had the kind of privilege of being able to present at NCS was some of the work that our team has done, really building the framework uh, and the workflow for the ElectroBoost or eBoost substudy of Boost 3. And so some of the listeners of the podcast may be familiar with Boost 3 or Boost 2, its predecessor, which is basically the prospective multicenter randomized control trial looking at brain oxygenation in severe traumatic brain injury. And ElectroBoost essentially is an extension of that study, trying to see whether or not there are signals on the EEG, which similar to brain oxygenation could be used to either predict or treat or target to see how outcomes look in traumatic brain injury patients. And so eBoost has a couple of different aims. Obviously, one, looking at the EEG itself, if there's different signals on the EEG that are associated with uh, outcomes in TBI patients. But one of the other aims of the study is trying to see how medication administration and medication use also impacts outcomes. And because, you know, knowing exactly what meds, be that sedation, seizure medications, vasopressors, analgesics may impact the EEG, it was critical for the design of the study for every patient enrolled to have an accurate record of which concomitant medications they were receiving during EEG monitoring. And so essentially the buildup to this work was that when eBoost was first designed, 
the way that it was built was that research coordinators would be doing manual data collection for every single one of those medication administrations. So many of the listeners in the podcast may remember their own residency research projects doing hours of chart review. And this was that, you know, again, times 10, where they were going to be chart reviewing every single drip rate change, every dose administration, every tiny minute detail for, you know, over the course of the study, hundreds of patients while, you know, they were on EEG monitoring, which could be five plus days. And so it's an enormous amount of work for these research coordinators to kind of get all of that data and collect it accurately. And so really the build up to this work was essentially a recognition of the skills of the pharmacist, both clinically as well as some of the work that we do with our residents and our projects and our own research of being able to essentially extract medication administrations for both administrative and research purposes. And so I was invited onto the research team to help essentially build a network within the study of each of the sites of this study being able to have a workflow to extract medication data for enrolled patients. And so this concept is called electronic data capture. It's really nothing that out of the ordinary of pulling a report out of your electronic medical record. But the idea is that myself at my own site, as well as the pharmacists at each of the individual study sites, would develop a workflow where they would capture the medication administrations for enrolled patients electronically, pull that out of their EMR, send that to the research coordinators, and then the research coordinators have an already organized comprehensive list of all the medication administrations that could then be uploaded to a secure trial database. And so essentially what we did is worked with all of these pharmacists, built these workflows, built the reports, built the teams within each site for those trials to kind of work seamlessly. And then what we did is essentially validated that that work was working correctly and was also accurate and saved time. <clears throat> and so we were able to basically pull some of the manual chart review that had already been done on previously enrolled patients and compared it to electronic data capture reports. And no surprises, the electronic data was actually higher fidelity and higher accuracy. And so the electronic data capture was able to actually find a number of errors of manual chart review, just mostly minor things like date transcription errors and time transcription errors. But a couple of things that would be quite relevant to us as pharmacists, like doses were doubled in mistakenly and other things that could substantially impact some of the minor points of the analysis that the electronic data capture data was able to essentially overcome. And so basically the conclusion was that building a network of pharmacist investigators at each of these trial sites was feasible and definitely improved the fidelity of the data that we were capturing for the trial. And also just showed that we can have this kind of collaborative nature where we're you know, all using our strengths for the good of the trial. And in addition, now that we have this high fidelity, minute to minute, comprehensive list of medication administrations for all of these trial patients, we're going to have an enormous database of knowledge that we'll be able to look at, not just for the purposes of the primary question of the study, but additional post-hoc analyses down the road. So we're really excited about what the uh, kind of the, the implications of having all this data available is. This is so great. And I, I want to point out to the listeners, like the, when you talk about the errors, like for example, uh, the time was supposed to be 0900 and it was put in as like 1209 AM as an 0009, right? So like something so minor, but obviously in, in the, in the scheme of this study, it could be a big deal. And so it's not like, um, I want to point out that these aren't like egregious errors. These are things happening when you're reviewing thousands of charts and truly like going through, like you're trying to find a needle in a haystack. Sometimes it feels like, and God bless all of you on this study. Cause if you've done research and got into the nitty gritty, 
typically all you want to do is never do that again. And you're going to find any way to make it better. So uh, I love that we have pharmacists leading the way to help this. Now, the on the poster itself, which for the listeners, right, we'll put a, a, a um, PDF of this on the website so you all can look at what we're talking about. But the research question asks if it was feasible to add a clinical pharmacist to this clinical trial team. So was there pushback at all? Was there hesitancy or was it more that kind of statement just because there's nothing in the literature describing our role in this kind of capacity? Yeah, I think it's exactly the latter where at you know, the start, there was a recognition that being able to pull medication administration data was kind of right up our alley, where it's something that, you know, we might do for medication use evaluations, research projects, administrative work. And as pharmacists, we kind of are the most fluent in what that data means. So what, you know, the different MAR actions are, what the times are, how to interpret the actual data that's exported. And additionally, the good thing, especially with neurocritical care, is our network is pretty tight. And so I am lucky to have contacts at many of the sites already and was easily able to connect with pharmacists kind of across the country at all the different sites or make new connections, which is one of the best parts of this project was being able to meet so many awesome colleagues at hospitals I hadn't met before. And so I think the, the feasibility aspect was A, kind of identifying the fact that we as pharmacists have the skills to do this. And then B, the other thing that was really the big amount of work that went into this was the feasibility of actually having the pharmacists build some of those reporting capabilities at their individual institutions. And so, you know, what we found is, you know, here at MGH, we're spoiled by having really great reporting infrastructure built into our our EPIC build and our kind of research infrastructure. But a couple of the sites, we did kind of have to walk the pharmacist through working with their informatics team, getting reports built, and making sure that this could actually happen. And so it was great to be able to talk to a pharmacist who really understood what we were asking and have them work with their individual sites to get the workflow working to make sure that the, the trial could kind of run as smoothly as possible. So this kind of sounds like it's one of the ways of, of research in the future, in a sense. Like, is this is this way uh, an avenue to continue increasing pharmacists' involvement in these meaningful research? Yeah, no, I definitely think so. I think it basically in two different ways, that's absolutely true. So one, I think that there's definitely a role for pharmacists in all prospective kind of randomized trials, especially those, or obviously those that involve medications, right? And so if there is a trial that involves a med, you know, there's, there's definitely a pharmacist involved somewhere, whether that's in your clinical trials pharmacy itself. But I do think that some of the knowledge and skills of the clinical pharmacist at the bedside really should be included in those trials too, be that being involved in making sure that the trial's data is being captured appropriately, or just ensuring that all of the kind of information that you might be interested about your trial patients is being kind of captured, recorded, and accounted for within the trial. And I think the second way this is really important, and you know, I think this is something that I feel pretty strongly about, is that we have electronic medical records for a reason, not just for patient care and making sure that we're kind of all staying up to date in the you know best way possible. But additionally, the EMR keeps all that data somewhere. And so I always say whenever you are interested in a research question that involves data that is documented in your EMR somewhere, you should it's worth your time to figure out how to get that without needing to do manual chart review and kind of spending time digging through those charts and being able to recognize that making these sorts of workflows to extract medication administrations or really any form of distinctly documented data from your EMR is a way to 
substantially increase the efficiency of any of your research projects. So, you know, for example, one of the pharmacists at one of the sites who went through the process of actually building the report, having it available for not just eBoost, actually mentioned to me that she's been able to use this report not just for eBoost, but several other projects that she has going on that can substantially save hours and hours and hours of manual chart review and data collection. That just, to your point, makes research more enjoyable. <laughs> there is truly nothing worse than just doing hours and hours of manual chart review for data that you know lives in some warehouse somewhere. Yeah, it's... Uh... Perfect, perfect advice because you're doing the legwork now to make life easier for research in this study and for future studies, right? Understanding the limitations because not only are you talking about manual data collection, but the possibility of like you missing something and having to re-go back, which is like, man, that's that's number one fear when you're doing manual. And this is a way to help prevent some of that. So um, Andy, thanks for leading the way. I appreciate you coming on, highlighting this study um, from the Neurocritical Care uh, annual meeting and appreciate, appreciate what you're doing for the research world, my friend. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me. And just another big shout out to the pharmacy section within the Neurocritical Care Society. Felt very welcome to great meeting if you've never been to. Um, if you're involved in the care of these patients, they're not a sponsor, um, but it's a great group to get involved with networking wise. Uh, friends, reach out. Let me know what you think at pharmacy to dose, uh, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. A reminder on um, the link in the episode description as well as the reference post on pharmacytodose.com it has the research posters there so you can view and see the great pharmacist research in a visual format for those uh, visual learners out there with us uh, so until next time i'm nick peters and this is pharmacy to dose the critical care podcast QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com apps. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only and does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the Critical Care PRN disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.